Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Technically, uh, on this journey of conversations that we're on. Um, so last week, we spoke to Simbarashi Mangena, who's a, a radiation scientist or nuclear scientist, sorry, at the Radiation Protection Authority of Zimbabwe. So that meeting was kind of cut short because of the network and network gremlins that have been affecting everybody over the week. Uh, so we only got a fraction of the time that we needed to properly explore the questions that um, we we had set out because uh, nuclear science and technology is quite a fast industry. And since we're learning about it, um, we wanted to make sure that we cover all our bases. So um, to start off with, I'm joined by Ed, who um, we pray today Net One is kind to him because ish, it's been a weird week. Um, <laughs> it's been crazy. <laughs> All right, so um, let's start with Simba. Um, well, it's more of a reintroduction, but for those who missed the first podcast, uh, can you just reintroduce yourself? All right. Uh, a very good afternoon to you all, everyone. Uh, thanks again for having me. And I'm sure I'm chuffed to be, to be there and hopefully the internet will be in our favor this time around. <laughs> uh, my name is Simba Rasha Mangena. I'm an engineer in uh, nuclear engineering. So basically, I'm a nuclear engineer. I work with the Radiation Protection Authority of Zimbabwe. So I'm here to discuss and also to conscientize the population about the aspects of uh, nuclear power, nuclear technology, and nuclear energy programs, and to answer the various questions and also to inform uh, in the most concrete, technical, as well as realistic way possible. In a nutshell, thank you. Fantastic. So I wanted, let's just, so since last episode was kind of um, cut short, we'll just start from the top for you know, who's also listening to this for the first time um, and start with um, the nuclear, the sorry, nuclear radiation protection authority of Zimbabwe. So it's an organization that I've seen a bunch of times, but don't really know what it does exactly. Um, I'm saying this in that I'm, I'm, I'm acting like one of those people who didn't listen to the, to the previous podcast. Mm -hmm. So could you just go over the responsibilities, the aims, the goals of what um, the Radiation Protection Authority of Zimbabwe does? Okay, the Radiation Protection Authority of Zimbabwe is a statutory body or an arm of government that was established to monitor and regulate the peaceful uses of radiation technologies in Zimbabwe. It is established under the Radiation Protection Act, Chapter 1515 of 2004. So basically, the Radiation Protection Authority is the watchdog uh, for all applications related to nuclear science, uh, radiation protection. It sets out the best practices, the standards uh, for which all technologies oriented in the subject matter are to perform. It's um, in the medical sector. There, it cross cuts across across several fields, if not all fields within the country. So wherever you have a radiation source, or wherever you have a radiation oriented practice, uh, RPAZ or the Radiation Protection Authority of Zimbabwe will be there to monitor and to regulate the peaceful use and the effective use, taking into consideration that radiation um, has adverse effects if uh, standard operating procedures and standard practices not adhered to. So we want to make sure as much as possible that the benefits outweigh the risks. Thank you. Oh, fantastic. Um, I like how you mentioned um, a few of the use cases of, um, of radiation. And um, so I was thinking 
in the various cases of nuclear science and nuclear technology in Zimbabwe, can you like go over probably the headings actions of these use cases of radiation, be it, I don't know, food and agriculture, in industry, in art? Um, where exactly do people use radiation apart from the usual electricity and bombs? Okay. Uh, I'll start off with the, everyone's favorite sector, which is the food sector, which is also serves as a basic need. <laughs> so with um, <laughs> as far as the food sector is concerned, uh, radiation technology is mainly employed for quality assurance purposes. I gave an example in the last uh, presentation of uh, the beverage industry, where we have uh, Delta beverages. Uh, for quality assurance, uh, we are looking at if you look at the liquid level in every bottle before it's opened, it is uniform. Field level detection is a radiation technology or a nuclear technology that is used for the bottling plants to make sure that uh, the product is at a uniform level and it is the right quality. Again, uh, if we look at um, um, another food application, let's uh, take, for example, the ever popular Nestle Zimbabwe. I'm sure we have a lot, a multiplicity of products that come from Nestle Zimbabwe. Uh, quality assurance in the food mm. sector is, a, is both paramount and fundamental uh, for safety as well and for health purposes. So we have nuclear technologies in the form of um, uh, particle detectors that are used, for example, by the guys that manufacture the acidifita or the powdered milk. You want to make sure that the particle size of each grain is uniform and is and is uniform and there are no coarse particles. So radiation technologies are used there to reject any coarse materials that can be, that can interact with the radiation beam, such that we ensure that the product that we are producing is of a uniform quality and of a uniform size. So in the food industry, it's pretty much for quality control. Again, if you look at um, uh, various food products, I'm sure before you buy any food commodity, you look at the expiry date. Um, addition technologies can also be used to increase the shelf life of foods. Normally, because our country is landlocked or landlinked, we definitely don't have any offshore activities. But for areas where there are offshore activities, food is irradiated in what are called radiation food irradiators to kill microbacteria that might cause decay of the food over time. So if those microbacteria are killed by the radiation beam, it means that the shelf life or the level of freshness of the food is elongated. That is also another application in the food sector. Then moving over to um, what resonates a lot with our country as far as uh, we are concerned, Zimbabwe is an agro-based economy. So I'm sure things that have to do with agriculture are also worth listening to and very pivotal in terms of uh, the national policy and the national system or the national mainstay. So in the agricultural sector, uh, there are a multiplicity of applications. For example, uh, we talk about uh, plant mutation breeding. Nuclear technologies are also there to optimize plant yields, taking into consideration issues to do with the climate change. So radiation technologies are there to also culture and develop uh, resistant uh, resistant varieties or cultivars of different crops. And again, uh, for breeding purposes, when we talk about artificial insemination and all those aspects, we want to, where we want to increase 
certain um, certain genes or certain characteristics that we wanted to boost in uh, the various livestock that will behave you behaving. Nuclear technology can also be used there. I'll give um, an example of. Um, I'm sure we are all familiar with the FAO, the Food and Agricultural Organization of the UN. It partners together. Yes. It partners together with the International Atomic Energy Agency, which is the mother body of all radiation technologies in the can in in the world. So under that um, understanding, with the Food and Agriculture Organization, uh, nuclear technologies has been used for improvement of for livestock quality, cell water systems analysis. Um, mutation breeding, various aspects that have to do with the enhancement of desirable characteristics and as well as weather monitoring per se. So these UN organizations have actually uh, established a partnership or a memorandum of understanding that allows nuclear technologies to be applied and nuclear research to be applied to agriculture, since agriculture is also a main stay in the world economy. Uh, moving over to the industrial applications. Basically in industry, uh, we are talking about process measurement and control systems. Process measurement and control systems are there to ensure that we've got the right product that we want to produce and we've got uh, the right systems and the right quality control measures that ensure we get the best output. So for example, in the pulp and paper industry, if you look at the thickness of paper, we have what we call thickness detectors that are used in the pulp and paper industry. For example, at Kaduma paper mills and the rubber and textile industries as well. Uh, if we look in the mining sector, mining and mineral processing, we interact with different types of fluids in mining and mineral processing. For example, slurries, for example, processed water, wastewater, all those uh, fluids need to be measured in terms of their density or in terms of the throughput of the material that we are we, we are mining. For example, if you're mining ore, uh, the, the output that you want to produce is uh, the specific, min specific mineral. For example, let's say gold. But for you to come up with the gold, you have to extract an ore body, which has got different types of uh, parent rock or different types of undesirable rocks that are embedded within the mineral of interest. So radiation technology is then used for throughput analysis to measure the amount of uh, ore that is going to be uh, put within the process and the amount of products that is also going to be put, that is going also going to be uh, achieved from the process so that you can also come up with engineering parameters that guarantee eff efficient and effective use of the plant. So we talk of density measurement instruments, we talk of um, flow measurement instruments, we talk of, um, throughput analysis, like uh, the built wares in the conveyor systems. Um, again, uh, I talked yes, uh, last time about the red road construction. For tarmac thickness, we've got what we call moisture density gauges that are nuclear technologies that are used to determine the thickness of tarmac and the moisture of the, the parent surface in which the task strip is going to be is going to be laid out or the pavement as they call it in the road industry, the ties, the pavement. Again, uh, another interesting application that we have in Zimbabwe is uh, uh, the diamond mining. In diamond mining, uh, 
like any other mineral processing systems, the diamonds are embedded in dirt. You know, the adage or the, the cliche that says it's a rough diamond, you definitely encounter the diamond from a lot of rubble. So for diamond sorting, we've got X-ray sorting systems that are also radiation technologies for us to identify the, the diamonds from the rubble by taking, into, by taking advantage of their characteristic that under the radiation beam, the diamondiferous material or the material of the diamonds fluoresces. So that fluorescence allows us to identify the diamonds from the rest of the unwanted uh, rocks and soil per se. Then again, mineral composition. If you want to analyze the mineral composition or the mineralogy of uh, our old beds, we have what we call X-ray fluorescence machines that are used to analyze all, and that helps the geologists and the mining uh, practitioners to see or to determine the viability of their operations. And of course, uh, in the tobacco industry, the content of tobacco in the cigars is also an application of radiation that is going to be used there, together with the smoke detectors that we talked about in the last time. So that is as far as industry is concerned. When we move it to the art industry, the art industry now is highly regulated by what we call the principle of justification. We are saying the benefit of the radiation should outweigh the risk. So we've got risks associated with uh, exposure of individuals. Initially, when uh, radiation technologies were discovered, uh, because of their properties of shining and uh, producing light in the dark, uh, people had that attraction to want to use them for jewelry ornaments. But uh, as uh, experience uh, prevailed and uh, understanding improved, people got to understand, got to, to observe that as they were wearing these ornaments with radiation sources, people were also getting exposed to the radiation. And they started developing sicknesses associated with the radiation, the cancers, the radiation pains, et cetera, et cetera. So in the art industry, it's very regulated. We don't, uh, globally, we no longer allow much of uh, radiation usage in the art industry because we are saying the justification principle should hold, the benefit should outweigh the risk. As you observed with what I alluded before, all the processes and the examples I was giving, they were to improve the quality of life of people. So if we're going to have a very nice piece of jewelry, uh, but at the back end, we're going to get someone being exposed to radiation and getting radiation burns, then the benefit there is obviously at loggerheads with the risk. So again, in hydrology and environment, we talk about basically hydrology comes from the Greek word hydro, which is water. So hydrology is the study of water. Here in Zimbabwe, RPA is actually uh, set a project to analyze the water bodies. You know, a lot of people are drilling boreholes in different water bodies. So it was prudent for the government also to analyze the radiotoxicity or the naturally occurring radioactive materials that people encounter, encounter when they drill underground to see that the water content that they strike, uh, is it not being um, mixed with a, a high concentration of toxic radioactive materials? So radiation technologies are used there now, spectroscopic analysis to make sure that we also analyze the radiation content, content in natural water bodies. So basically, this phenomenon of radiation cross-cuts in a lot or if not everything that we do. 
in a nutshell. Yeah, it actually covers a lot of stuff. So I have a bit of a follow-up question. Um, when you're mentioning radiation and it's like variety of uses, it got me thinking what types of radiation are in common use? Um, I'm familiar with x-rays in the medical field and UV radiation for disinfecting products and surfaces, but are there any other ones um, that you can mention and maybe also tell us which ones are more dangerous than the other? Okay, uh, with respect to the types of radiation, uh, the amount of radiation or basically the energy that you use uh, varies with the process that you want or the application that you want. You, you will have um, applications with high energy sources uh, going to be used in systems like in the industries and in the mines. So the type of sources that we use basically in the mines are what we call gamma radiation emitting sources. The gamma radiation is the highly penetrating radiation, which can, um, which is able to penetrate all materials and it can only be shielded by lead material. We also have what we call the alpha sources, uh, which is also another type of radiation that emanates from the nucleus of the atom. Uh, that radiation, that energy is very short-lived. It's got a high intensity, but it's for short-lived or, or medium process applications where you want to use a lot of energy within a short space of time. We also have got the beta radiation, which are charged particles, which are also medium level radiation that are going to be used again with the, the different aspects that you would want to, to, to apply. And again, in the nuclear context, what is very important in the nuclear context is the neutron radiation. The neutrons are atomic particles. Remember from our general science, we've got protons, neutrons, and electrons. So the neutrons are the neutrally or uncharged particles that are used to excite or to initiate nuclear reactions. So neutron sources are also used in areas where we take, for example, like I give you an example of the road construction where we want to test the moisture content of the road to determine the thickness of the tarmac. The neutrons have got, say, can be absorbed by water. So the rate of absorption of neutrons by water can then be used to compute the level of moisture that will be within the test sample or the uh, area where we want to establish our tarmac. So in general, these are the types of radiation that are the, the X-ray radiations are also similar to the gamma radiation in the sense that they are both highly penetrating, but the gamma radiation is good, more penetrating power because it emanates straight from the nucleus. The X-ray radiation is coming from the electron transitions. So both are electromagnetic in nature, but the energy content will vary because the one that is generating from the nuclear side has got more energy and is more penetrating. So these are basically the types of radiation that are there. Oh, great. Um, so since we've got the lowdown of the type of radiation available, uh, the one that everybody's familiar with when it comes to nuclear energy and one we touched on last time was nuclear for power generation, which is one we sort of left out until now um, because it's, it's the most popular one and everybody, um, you know, is familiar with it besides, of, of course, the nuclear bombs. So my question is, um, Africa isn't really common. It's not common for African countries to have a nuclear program or the one country that we spoke about last time that had a nuclear program um, was um, 
South Africa. And this is weird because Africa or African countries, namely Namibia, Niger, Libya, South Africa, amount for or reportedly amount for 18% of the world's annual uranium production. So these, these, this, this, this uh, uranium is obviously going to countries that can process it, uh, enrich it, and then use it for, for nuclear programs and, and other uses. I'm skirting over, you know, weapons programs, but for the uses. So since we're, we're, we're over ju just under a fifth of the world's production, why is it that Africa has not had a nuclear program? Or why is it that we produce, but we don't use those resources for ourselves? Okay, that's a very good question. Uh, with, the, with respect to the African context, our challenge basically was uh, uh, the owners of the technology and the nuclear technologies that we see on the market. Uh, the current um, large-scale nuclear power plants that are on the market are capable of generating energy at the very minimum of 1,000 megawatts electrical, which is one gigawatt electrical. Uh, energy grids in Africa in general who vary uh, to about 1,700, 2,000 megawatts for the whole country. So uh, in energy generation or in an energy mix, we've got what we call the rule of 10, that uh, a single power plant is not uh, allowed to produce more than 10% of the grid capacity. So when we talk about uh, the national scale or the regional scale, we are not talking about one form of energy, but we're talking of an energy mix. So the reason why we did not have much application of uh, uh, nuclear within the energy mixes of Africa was based on, first of all, the affordability, the cost of uh, a, 1, 000, a 1 gigawatt one gigawatt electrical nuclear power plant was out of reach for most African, for most African economies. And again, the grid sizing, if you look at, the, at Africa, the African Development Bank postulates that uh, the energy consumption per capita in the sub-Saharan Africa, aside of South Africa, is sitting at 1,800 kilowatts, kilowatt hours, that is per capita per head, which means that in global statistics, uh, Africa um, is actually using 40% of Africa is access to electricity, which means that already the grid capabilities and the grid systems that are within the continent are not robust enough to sustain a large-scale nuclear power plant. So that is why we had been having a problem with Africa. But now from 2015 going onwards, uh, there's been the advent of development of what we call small modular reactors, which have rekindled the interest of uh, nuclear technology and application of nuclear power within uh, the energy mixes of Africa. Okay, so I have a following question, and it's it's one thing that I've always thought about when it comes to Africa, that we're a perennial producer of raw materials. Never do we process, never do we refine any materials on the, in, on the continent, or very rarely do we do, but there are other countries which are close to the second world, and our second world, countries like South Africa, Egypt, etc. So for those countries that produce but can't refine, in terms of nuclear context, can't we leverage the resources for the nuclear technology you spoke of earlier? So in the sense okay. that if... if um, if Zimbabwe has uranium and it's selling it, to the sellers, they say, okay, listen, for, for what we're going, we're going to sell you at a certain rate, but what we want at this cut rate is either uh, assistance from nuclear technology scientists and engineers like yourself from abroad to come and help, or in the form of equipment, or in the form of you know a blueprint for a nuclear sort of framework. Yes, uh, thank you. Uh, currently in Africa, 
we actually have had rekindled interest. By rekindled interest, I'm saying we've got a lot of countries that are embarking on nuclear energy programs. Closer to home or very close uh, within us, Zambia, our neighboring country uh, to the north, is actually embarked on the nuclear energy program. Uh, we've got Sudan as well, that is also embarked on the nuclear energy program. We've got Tanzania, we've got Uganda, all these countries. Um, Sudan, actually, after South Africa right now, the country that is closest to be developing or to be the second uh, African state that is going to be having or that is going to be running a nuclear power or that is going to be constructing nuclear power right now is Egypt. So if you look, already there is a lot of activity among our regional member states or among the sub-region um, blocks as well as the African continent in general. Look at West Africa and Ghana and Nigeria, they, they are also having uh, nuclear uh, they also have impact in certain national positions for a nuclear power program. And uh, look at Niger as well, that also has a lot of uranium deposits. They are a former Anglophone country, which are, are likely to be leasing their technology from the fridge. So it's just that um, this uh, information was uh, not uh, popular in terms of people really scrutinizing, but there's a lot of activity and interest that is practically happening in the African context. We are no longer at a theoretical scale where we are saying we might want. There is actually activity that is going on at different stages. So uh, all this activity was actually uh, in pursuit of the current nuclear technology on the market, which is the one gigawatt electrical. So the idea was to develop the infrastructure first because it takes about 10 to 15 years as you develop right up to construction. So, because we now have these small modular reactors, uh, the feasibility of actually going beyond developing the infrastructure to actually constructing and running a plant is actually become very practical and very reachable. So, perennially, yes, we've been a, a producer of the uranium raw material exporting to the developed countries and actually the developed countries exploiting that resource and using it for their own benefit and development of their countries. So again, I would also want to mention on the aspect of uranium deposits. Uh, there's this analogy that uh, because people are used to the thermal plants where we've got coal, that since we've got coal deposits, we can get our coal, burn it and produce uh, energy from the thermal plants. A nuclear plant is a thermal plant, which is a nuclear reactor, is the, is the heat source there. So you're not burning uranium, but uranium is actually a raw material for fabrication of nuclear fuel. So what I'm saying is you don't necessarily need to have uranium deposits. Well, it's there an advantage for you to also then play bargain with the processors and the developers of the nuclear fuel so that you get your nuclear fuel at a premium. Yes, even without nuclear, without deposits of uranium, you can import your nuclear fuel. It is also something that we, we need to consider again as a region that since we are in Africa and we've got a lot, we contribute a significant percentage, like 18% of the world's uranium production. Why should we not then establish nuclear power plants and establish a central nuclear fuel fabrication plant that allows us to supply within the continent? Because for you to have one nuclear plant in a state and then have one nuclear fuel fabrication plant, it is not commercially viable to run one nuclear fuel fabrication plant when you've got a nuclear power plant 
that is single because the refueling cycles of a nuclear plant are basically two years. After two years, that is when you can refuel. So the thinking would be maybe you've got uh, one state in the, in the block if in a nuclear fuel fabrication plant, let's say, for example, Niger, supplying the rest of the continent to nuclear power plants with fuel. That is the kind of rationale that needs to also be discussed at regional level. I see. Um, well, I'm, I'm just hoping that at the very least we can then, you know, at least uh, push the boundaries of, you know, we're not just resources, resource manufacturers, resource producers. We also want to be a player in this because, you know, 18% is not a little bit, it's quite a lot. Uh, in the grand scheme of things. Um, so looking, look, narrowing down from the African context, uh, let's look at Zimbabwe, for example. So I am unfamiliar with um, the regulations and legislation and uh, frameworks that exist. So since you've mentioned the small modular nuclear power reactors earlier, that make it a lot cheaper to have one, right? Um, what is stopping Zimbabwe from adopting nuclear in terms of, or not even, let's say, not, let's not jump ahead of us and say adopt nuclear, but at least look into the possibility of nuclear, accommodating our, our systems for these modular nuclear power plants, or, you know, in, or even in preparation for it, or even as a plan B or C. Um, is, are there financial restraints? Is it regulatory restraints? Where is Zimbabwe standing when it comes to um, nuclear power generation and its development? I'll, I'll refer to the biblical context that uh, is quoted from Ecclesiastes that says there's a time and season for everything. And I'm sure right now is the time and it is the season where if you look at uh, Zimbabwe's activities from the Second Republic, 2019, um, we submitted our instruments for ratification for the Comprehensive Nuclear Testament Treaty. Again, the same year, we also entered into a memorandum of understanding with Russia's Rosatom for peaceful applications of nuclear. Again, Russia's Rosatom is actually a major player in the African context or in the world context in terms of leasing out nuclear technologies. They're actually the main vendor on the market right now together with China. So if you look at these actions and the activities in the national context, they definitely show an element of interest that then needs to be lobbied for. We are, we are basically in the neighborhood. The actions that we have shown, they, or the activities that have been done at state level, have shown a, a, an interest in wanting to develop or in, an interest in wanting to further enhance the level of appreciation of nuclear technologies. So this is now the time in the season where people like us should also start talking to the populace and having these discussions going around. Yes, even at, uh, at policy level, uh, we need to also be engaging and lobbying for such uh, activities. Because rightly, as you are speaking, the human resource capability or the know-how within the national system is very limited. So if you've got a person like me with the expertise uh, keeping quiet, I'm also robbing the nation of valuable information. So I'm sure even from this discussion, I'm sure there are a lot of people who are privy to this uh, platform who are also be listening and also wanting to get to know more. It's, this is actually an opportunity to build from, or rather a foundation stone that we can lay to for further interactions and further systems. Because the government is as capable as the human resource or the human or the personnel within the country that are there. So if the knowledge base is there, the knowledge base is dormant. There's no way the state can act. So the knowledge base, though limited, is already interacting like what we are doing now. 
it is definitely going to sow seeds of better cooperation and hopefully lobbying for a national position because everything starts with the national position. After the national position or the statement of intent, which may be normally is a white paper or a governmental decree or declaration that says we wanted to establish a civilian nuclear energy program, it sets the ball rolling. The International Atomic Energy Agency, a program of the UN, which is also, uh, we, we as a country are also signatory to UN conventions. All these systems, they are there. They are waiting for us to make a choice. There is no way the international community can come and say, uh, Zimbabwe have a nuclear energy program. It starts from us. Everything that we have uh, starts from our desire to want to develop. So these discussions are also going to set the ball rolling for such discussions in, in, in the national end, of course, in the pinnacle of the system as well. So we don't, we, we actually start by starting. So right now, as we are discussing, I'm sure we're going to set a platform for even, even to interact with the decision makers and also explain and also conscientize. Because I'm sure even before this discussion, if you talked about nuclear, uh, I would refer to the vernacular context. People will say, ah, Shema Bomba. That is what is known by <laughs> yes. So as we discuss yeah. now, our appreciation is improving. Thank you. All right, fully so, right? Fully so, yeah, it, it is improving. And and like perpetuating that discussion as well, like um, in the rise of alternative energy sources like solar, uh, putting into question the viability of nuclear energy for Zimbabwe and Africa as a whole. Uh, both thing that Africa is not ready for is the storage and disposal of nuclear waste, or at least that's the assumption. Um, many countries have had to manage regular amenities of modern life. Are there any plans or a framework in place to, to deal with this at a, at a continent-wide uh, level? Okay, I thank you very much for that good question. I want to first tackle the aspect of the nuclear and solar uh, comparison. You see, the thing with, with solar, uh, when we talk about national energy, plan, energy planning or energy policy, we're talking of an energy mix. An energy mix is an assortment of different technologies that are going to be supplying energy for different applications. We've got local applications. We've got uh, personal applications, let's say within the home context, where you've got lighting, you've got uh, entertainment, internet. That's where we have our solar coming in because solar is very much good for the domestic applications. But when you talk about uh, generating electricity in the grid to run mines and manufacturing plants from solar, uh, it becomes a bit limited. In the, what, am I, what am I trying to say? I'm trying to point out or to, to, to create in our imagination an energy mix whereby we've got a, a workhorse that supplies the workhorse energy. Then we've got uh, smaller systems that supply the day-to-day -day small energy needs. So technically now, when we talk of energy technologies, we talk of what we call the capacity factor. The capacity factor in simple terms is how often a plant is running at maximum power. A plant with a capacity factor of 100% means that it is producing the power all the time. Eh? That is what we would want if we're considering the national context. So if we look at our, our technologies, 
nuclear has got a capacity factor of 92.5 percent mm. or 93 or rather 92.3 percent to be to be conservative what am i saying i'm saying at 92.3 percent you've got a plant that is running at maximum power at 336 days out of the 365 days in a year which means that um 29 days out of that total can be spread evenly for what? Inspections and maintenance, ETC. If you look at natural gas, natural gas has got a capacity factor of 56.8%. Coal, which is actually our mainstay, our workhorse energy, has got a capacity factor of 47.5%. Hydro, 39.1%. Wind, 34.8%. Right down to solar, which has got the least capacity factor of 24.5%, which means that it's 24.5%, 92 out of the 365 days, the solar plant is producing maximum power. So the solar being the technology with the least uh, capacity factor, then means that it can be used for the low load applications where we talk about home lighting, our pumps, our solar systems at home in the plots, where we want to just be having our water to water our gardens. But when we talk about bringing big Cisco online, Shabadi Mashava Mines online, Mangura online, we need a workhorse energy that is producing a steady base load for reindustrialization or for developing a, or for providing capacity for all the other, the other energy intensive projects that actually have got an economic bearing to be functioning. That is the basic analogy. So in national planning, we talk about an energy mix. You've got a base load, the workhorse energy. You've got the, the light energy systems. You've got also load follow applications for fluctuations in the load, where we say uh, the electricity consumption at night is actually less than the electricity consumption during the day because people are sleeping, they're not cooking, they're doing ETC. And at times like that, maybe the industry is at full capacity. So it's an energy mix. Uh, we work in Italia. Solar is good technology. All these are the hydro and thermal, they are also good technologies. But we, we need the workhorse energy for economic development. Then again, uh, as we move into the African context, I, I really liked the question that you put across of waste management. It's a very pertinent question that we have to actually address. You see, with the nuclear power plants, because I had said initially that the knowledge is limited. And every people and everyone who goes anti-nuclear talks about this at layman level. What are you doing with the waste? Right? In a nuclear system, we've got two waste management regimes. When we discharge fuel from the nuclear reactor, after two years, when we refuel, we put our spent fuel into what we call weight storage. These are spent fuel pools that are designed within the nuclear system to hold the fuel, to allow it to be stored carefully without emitting radiation to the public and cool down. So in wet storage, the spent fuel is designed to have a capacity storage time of over 40 to 60 years. So from 40 to 60 years, we then move to what we call a dry storage regime, where we've got what we call nuclear fuel, spent, spent nuclear fuel casks, which are stainless steel structures that are there to hold the fuel assemblies and also ensure that they are protected and they are not emitting radiation to the environment. That is a dry storage regime. 
From the dry storage regime, we have what we call the final waste repository or the final waste management facility, where we design what we call a deep geolog geological deposition area, where we put engineering structures to make sure that these spent sources are kept for the rest of their life. In the context of Zimbabwe right now, Zimbabwe is constructing a radioactive management facility, a radioactive waste management facility at Edcliffe Lake. That is for all the byproduct radiation sources after their use. So any country that is willing or that is going to undertake a nuclear energy a program in a nuclear power plant, these are the engineering designs that are there to make sure that the waste is isolated from the public. And there are also administrative and security systems to make sure that these areas are inaccessible to the rest of the public. So it's a, it's, it's a very bad excuse or a very demeaning excuse for someone to then say, how do we manage our waste? We're actually failing to manage our own waste. That is the domestic waste. No, engineering systems are there and structures are there. So the waste situation, as long as the nuclear plant development, the nuclear plant uh, licensing and regulation, which comes again from the regulator, is in place and robust enough, we will not have nuclear waste coming into the general public. Like right now, I actually told you about the radioactive waste facility that is here in Zimbabwe right now. It's something that you never knew, but uh, it's actually there to make sure that you and I are not going to be exposed to these radiation sources. So it's uh, very much of a null and void excuse for people to talk about the waste issue because we will be talking from a layman's perspective that is not informed. Thank you. Well, speaking for the layman, I was just curious um, that in like from a i'm seeing this for the first time sort of perspective um the one thing that comes to my mind initially is that okay number one to get this nuclear waste um to the position that it needs to be again this is speaking just from a layman's perspective perspective sorry um we need the logistics to move it around number one number two in the construction of these sites we need special sites that are zoned to be able to accommodate this that will be away from human contact uh, sites that will be sustainable for a long time with, again, inspectors. I'm sure, uh, as, as, uh, as I'm saying this, there are people who in either in Zimbabwe or in the region are specialists in this. But these are questions that came up while, while, while you're speaking. Uh, we need specialists who can zone these areas and then construction companies that can build and reassure the people that the area that are zoned to store nuclear waste in whichever state it is wet or uh, other is contained and then is transported efficiently in these places. Now, we have a road network infrastructure that is not the most ideal for moving it over large distances. And I'm just throwing this out there. I don't think we have the vehicles to be able to move things like that if need be, that becomes the case. Uh, so I'm curious as to how will these, how will these challenges be tackled uh, when it comes to first the zoning issue, where, where like you said, there was one in Hatfield, but for example, if we're doing it on a national scale, we'll need something akin to the United States as Yucca Mountain Nuclear Waste Repository. I'm not sure if it's opened or not, but it's something of that, not something of that scale. Um, uh, so zoning is the first issue, transportation, uh, building uh, are the three things that I well, hope you can touch on. Okay, thank you very much for those questions. It's very good that you probed them like that so that we can actually explain them in a way that people will actually understand. Uh, basically, a nuclear energy program. Uh, the first commercial nuclear reactor started running in 1955. Right now we are here in 2020. Experience and expertise have been established 
such that every newcomer nuclear country, uh, upon expressing interest to develop a nuclear energy program, is then assisted by the United Nations, which is the internet, the United Nations body, which is the International Atomic Energy Agency, to develop a nuclear infrastructure that is able to sustain all the rudiments associated with application of the nuclear technology. What am I saying? I am saying setting up a nuclear plant, the nuclear standard is the highest safety and security standard in the world. So it is very unlike to the idea of you saying, I want to build my house and I'll build my house the way I want. The moment you decide to go nuclear as a nation, the world system comes and says, this is how we establish our nuclear plant from A to Z with the international standards. The expertise to train your personnel to develop all capabilities within the supply chain will be provided. So you are not going to have a nuclear plant in Zimbabwe whose standards do not compare to a nuclear plant in the United States of America, whose standards do not compare to the nuclear plant in the Russian Federation, whose standards do not compare with a nuclear plant in, the French, in France. So we've got a holistic international board that allows us to develop the capability and to also implement the construction phase. That is why I said a nuclear energy program takes 10 to 15 years to develop. It's not like you just waking up and saying, I want to build a plant now. We take into consideration all the aspects. We find out the gaps in human resources. How do we come up with a localization of technology system? Whereby today you've imported a beam for your nuclear plant. Next time, how can Cisco Steel or another plant locally be able to get into the supply chain? Say that you have your things locally with you. So the idea is when we get to start and to implement these things, there are international conventions and standards. And there is what we call a peer review, what we call a integrated nuclear infrastructure review mission that at every stage of your development, we've got what we call the milestones approach with the three stages, ready to make an informed position, training and development up to construction. There is international peer review that allows you to effectively develop the infrastructure and then implement. Because with the highest standard in the world, our worry is very much into regulation and developing the capability. Tertiary, the, or the tertiary worry is the construction. Because if the infrastructure, the systems are in place, the construction becomes easy. So we are dealing with the highest standard in the world, which we only need to raise our hands up towards and then follow the international protocols associated with developing, such that in the end of our era, we can also contribute to the next generation and say that we are the people that started a nuclear energy program. This plant that you now have was as a result of the sacrifices that we put in to want to develop to this stage. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Simbarashi. It was great to have you on and it was great to complete the conversation we should have completed last week. And thankfully the network this, this week was, was kinder. Um, you, you gave us a lot to think about uh, and, and, and a lot to read about when it comes to nuclear technology and science, not just in energy power, in energy power generation, but in, in all the other aspects of, of, of applications. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. It was a pleasure.
And thank you to you, the listeners, um, for joining us with this, and to Edwin, um, who's gone suspiciously quiet. Has Ned one abandoned you, Edwin? <laughs> <laughs> oh, not yet. Well, I assume not yet, but I think we're all right. <laughs> all right. So from everyone here, thank you very much for listening. See you next time.